لذیع very palpable sense of quiet in the space of stillness of presence feels a fortunate a blessed thing to be able to come and enter into this with you all and I hope not too many of you were here at 2.30 a.m. I know a certain enthusiasm for practice might have taken the sign literally, but uh, apologies for the error. Which was mine. It was 9.30 the last time I did it last year. And I failed to spot that obvious adjustment being required and likewise I hope you're not too surprised that it's happening now in case you consciously intentionally avoided not coming down at 2.30 to not be at the questions and we're hoping for a quiet sitting at this time I have some questions and uh, they've been written and uh, I'll engage with them in a moment but I also am happy to receive any live questions if there are Anything that, or is anything anyone would wish to ask directly here. And without limiting the opportunity, I just want to get a sense if there are any amongst you who would wish to ask a question live as such, because uh, I'd probably start with that if that was the case and then move on to the written questions. But uh, if there isn't, then obviously I won't. But without having to ask your question yet, there are some questions, at least. Okay, and there may be some that occur or that arise as we go. Sometimes the the practice of uh, questions is is an interesting one in the sense of, just want to say a couple of things, but the written ones at least, I may not necessarily answer exactly what you were looking for, but there's there's something about the the aliveness of a a question that I haven't had a chance to look at before that's uh, kind of interesting to begin with. So... uh, Sure, yeah. So in the Buddhist teaching it seems like begging is very central, at least in the monastic tradition. And I wonder how we as lay people might practice begging and how would that be sort of challenging and possible. Mm-hmm. So do people hear the, the question, the uh the way in which in the tradition of the Buddha he established the monastic order for the uh, nuns and for the monks that they were reliant on uh, begging essentially is the way it can sometimes be called and uh, for their for their food and in fact actually for all their livelihood requisites and the, the question is with regard to how that might be a part of one's practice in the modern context that we are in. So first of all, although it's called begging... Um, and that's fair enough. What's interesting is that from the monastic point or from the practice point of view and within the traditions that I've been closer to at least, although it's acknowledged that yes, one is begging, there is a kind of an intentional practice that the way one describes it is to go into a place where others might come and make oneself available. 
That's the kind of phrase that some, one of my teachers would use. And I think it's interesting. It's not like going there and asking for or demanding or calling or pulling or trying to evoke some um, responsive pity or even um, sort of concern, which we might traditionally associate with begging, like, you know, I'm in a difficult situation, please help me. But more actually making oneself available to receive something. And from, you know, many conversations I've had with monastic friends over the years, the, you know, the tradition and then certainly in the Thai forest uh, communities and others, where it really has to be by midday or if it's given after midday, it's, it's not able to be received because the, the interpretation of the rule that most follow suggests that uh, one must have consumed one's meal by midday, noon. So a certain amount of excitement or tension arising in that period not long before midday as to will something appear if it hasn't already. So in that, that sense, there's, there's a couple of things. That there's one thing about making oneself vulnerable and dependent that's in this. So rather than just calling it begging, it's a process of making oneself vulnerable, acknowledging, or in this case, making oneself dependent upon a practice that makes one dependent upon others, and making oneself available to receive what might be offered. And those elements, I think, can perhaps more easily be incorporated than necessarily if, if one wishes to, to to beg as such or to um, another way to put it might be to live in dependence upon the generosity of others in one sense uh, we're all living in that basis we're all dependent upon the generosity of support in many different ways that comes from others but it's uh, it could be an interesting thing to experiment with, to explore. I don't actually have a framework for it as such, as in terms of you're inviting reflections. I won't necessarily have an answer. I mean, for myself, living as I do, simply receiving the support that's offered, that's given through students, practitioners, um, there is a sense for me, not so much of begging, but yeah, making oneself available, being open to that, and I think it's a very interesting thing to make oneself available for generosity. To place oneself in that position of humility, of vulnerability, and of, in a way, acknowledging inter interdependence and equally, in this case, absolute dependence, um, in a sense, for one's survival. In a certain way, the food here that's given is, is offered. And uh, I guess one could complain if it didn't turn up one day, but uh, it does occasionally happen. I don't want to concern anyone. But there was the odd time the meal didn't happen. These days it's a little bit too well-oiled and organised as a machine, but there were times past where someone didn't quite remember they were on putting out breakfast. Or some mm, minor or not-so-minor catastrophe happened at lunch and uh, food wasn't there. Or at least the intended food, but probably... There's always crackers and other such things. So my sense in that is that it's a really interesting thing to put oneself in that vulnerability of dependence and sometimes actually just to acknowledge, so where and how am I dependent upon others? So that one doesn't, in one's engagement with spiritual practice, become removed from the worldly 
reality. So I think that's part of it, that one of the reasons the monastics and the monasteries are not allowed to engage in food production or food sort of storage in theory, although they actually find ways to do that these days, um, is to stay in a position of vulnerability and uh, immediacy of dependency, that you know, food given today cannot be kept till tomorrow. And so I guess, yeah, the reflection I have is sort of where and how in one's life does one live in that spirit of honouring, of acknowledging that actually I, we, I am dependent upon what others offer, what this world offers to us. And that we cannot be sure from day to day that what we've been offered will be offered the next day. I think that's something that helps certain quality of wakefulness and also evokes a real sense of gratitude, of appreciation, of not taking for granted the the blessing and good fortune that we have and what we receive. So many different ways that we receive that. I once met a traveller when I was in my when I was travelling myself and he he practiced, uh, having contemplated some sort of spiritual text, he practiced when he didn't need to wear an item of clothing, taking it off and putting it down and going on his way and hoping that when he next needed such an item of clothing he might come across whatever he needed, whether it be a blanket or a nothing. And I remember thinking, gosh, that's interesting. You know, we could ask for some clothes if you're short of clothes, I guess, but... Uh, it's a little different, but something in that spirit in terms of practice that not so much holding on to or gathering to ourselves the things we've accumulated so far, whether they be financial resources or food, even in its most immediate survival sense, but not holding so closely that sense of I have and control and maintain a supply of all the things that I need but exposing ourselves a little to the condition that the vast majority of beings in the world exist in, which is a, it's a, a relationship of uncertainty, of dependence upon others. I realise I could say quite a lot more, um, but I think I'll pause it there. If there's anything specific in what I said or from what I didn't say that you wanted to add or ask, you're very welcome. But, okay. Thank you. So I'm again just looking to see if there are any questions live in the room right now. And if I don't see, which is fine, I'll turn to the, the written questions. Some teachers really support or request the reduction of sleep. When I do it, my attention perception gets fuzzy and I just th or I just think a lot more. No countermeasure known to me helps except going back to sleep. Or sleeping more, presumably. Is there a secret to this? Like, 
push it down to four hours a night and then end up with six hours a night. Yeah, we, we don't usually tell you the secret. That's part of the fun, really, isn't it? We know all the answers. Our teachers told us eventually after, you know, decades of suffering and then we don't really let on. <coughs> yeah, classically, um, you know, it's in the text. You can see the Buddha recommends uh, practicing in the first and the third watch of the night. And the first watch being from eight till midnight, practicing, sitting, walking, standing. And practicing in the third watch of the night from um, four o'clock till eight o'clock, sitting, walking, standing. And sleeping, as one might, you know, be grateful to do in the middle watch of the night between midnight and four a.m. And this kind of uh, instructional suggestion is not uncommon and uh, in sort of in intensive practice contexts and uh, certainly a lot of traditional Asian teachers may suggest this. I think it has a place within a certain mode of practice but it's not something that's that useful to try and impose upon you upon yourself. So just to say for myself, I've um, sometimes practiced in this way. I remember one of my teachers, Manindra, I might have mentioned him the last time I spoke, I think, um, in India, and he, you know, he told me about one period of time where he didn't sleep for several days because his practice was so intense, so bright, so clear, that just, it didn't arise the need. And this wasn't an instruction, it was just, it wasn't needed. And uh, sometimes myself, I've explored and experimented with, you know, practicing through the night or having just two or three or four hours sleep. And what I've noticed is that for a little while, what it can, for me at least, my experience, it might enable a sustaining and a deepening of um, continuity and um, of energy in the practice that often there's a way in which when we go to sleep, certain samatha elements kind of lose a certain degree of their momentum and then you have to kind of re-engage them. And having just four hours between stopping and starting again means one doesn't lose much of that momentum. So there's a way in which it can work in that way. But for myself, I've inevitably found if I did it over more than a few days, I started to get fuzzy and tired. And actually at a certain point, or actually the quality of the practice is not as clear or as bright or as sustainable as it was. And yet there's something very interesting in uh, breaking through whatever attachment one might have to this amount of sleep and not feeling fuzzy and the, the fear we can have around it. And so again, you know, in some traditions, they're sometimes sitting up all night. And for me, that's a useful thing to explore on occasion in the context of a longer retreat. You know, maybe one night, oh, so what's it like if I sit up all night? and get sleepy and drowsy and fuzzy and my practice doesn't actually feel as crisp or as clear the next day. But maybe that's all right if it's working with fear and attachment around sleep. So secrets, I actually tend to find more useful rather than sort of force or sort of trying to force the amount of sleep to become less, to just really look at our willingness to get up when we wake up. And that's what tends to work for me more. So saying, okay, so if I wake up after just a few hours sleep, I won't roll over and go back to sleep. I'll get up and practice. And if I'm tired the next day, or if it happens a few times and I get tired, then I'll take a bit more sleep. 
some approaches to meditation that are very sort of much more involved with certain intensity oriented technical sort of forms I think may benefit from or or maybe more in alignment with that kind of instruction but it's not something I particularly recommend or suggest but it's certainly as, or suggest as a this is what you should do as opposed to this is something you could explore and see what happens and I think that's really the way to hold it. So there's a, a renunciate quality in the process whereby we're actually not necessarily just working on what produces the clearest, brightest and more, most sustained um, capacity for attention, for, for, for concentration, for insight, but also for what actually allows us to relinquish any... Um, any attachment we have both to the need for sleep and for the condition of relative comfort that we experience when we get enough sleep. And just as in various practice, sometimes we, we work a little bit the edge of discomfort, exploring the edge of not being quite so alert. Um, what I've noticed, again, reducing sleep significantly at times um, in, in, in periods of longer periods of practice, that often there might be a period in the day where there's a wave of really heavy tiredness. And for me, classically, it would be in the, um, the early afternoon. And just working with that for the period of time that it's there um, in various ways. And then often finding that actually, oh, it's not that I'm necessarily not getting enough sleep, it's just that if I don't, if I only sleep three or four hours in the night, then I'm going to have a period in the day where I either need to nap or I need to just practice two or three hours with heavy, thick, fuzzy sensations and mind states and see if that has something to offer. Sorry if you were looking for the secret. Um, I'm not sure that's it. But I think it's, it's, it's an interesting area to explore. The texts speak of a wisdom worker and a faith worker. How do their faculties differ, especially with view to some vega? Some vega. So, the texts do speak of a wisdom worker or faith worker, or I prefer the translation um, wisdom follower, faith follower. Um, and it relates to the samvega, the, the quality of spiritual urgency is founded more, in a sense, on the basis of our understanding of dukkha and the possibility of its release that's actually sort of understood or that's more that we have a sense of faith in that possibility based on um, what we've heard and what we've seen, particularly and often classically, of one's teachers. Um, how do their faculties differ? Um, to be honest, I couldn't really say much more than uh, affirming the fact that one is relying more on wisdom and the other more on faith. If for yourself you're wondering which of these two you are and maybe then whether that would affect how you might practice. I would suggest you raise that in an interview. I don't think I can usefully give a 
as sort of an articulation of those two different orientations in a just a, a sort of a general commentary way. Um, and just so you know, I, I don't think it's actually something one has to determine with regard to oneself. In a certain way, it's more of a preliminary orientation. It's part of what gets one in to begin with. It's like you hear, it's, it's almost like more, maybe one's more of a, a, a bright head center faculty that kind of hears the Dharma and thinks, oh yeah, that makes sense to me. I want to try that out. I want to put that into practice. Whereas the, the faith follower is more the sense of the, the heart response to hearing the teachings or encountering someone who's practicing the teachers is a sense of, oh yes, I want to... It's it's sort of like more of, I think, the sense of a feeling response to the possibility that's being evoked. And so in these, we're talking about faculties, that in terms of the, the spiritual faculties, both wisdom and faith are, are central qualities to be developed. And if one of them is stronger for us, then it kind of might be what leads us, but ultimately the other equally is to be developed and will be will be needed. So again, I think that's what I could usefully respond um, for now. If whoever has written this question, or the previous in fact, and you don't have to announce that to be the case, but if you wanted to ask something continuing on from what I've said, or if I didn't quite answer the question, what I often would say here is that I'll respond to the question. I may not answer it, maybe because I can't, or maybe because I'm not sure that's what's most useful. But you're very welcome to pick it up if there's something further there. At this point or later. question appears to be addressed to someone called Anatta. Anatta, whose body is it anyway? I guess that's not exactly how it's written, but that's how it appears when I look at it. So, Anatta, question about whose body is it anyway? Not me, not mine, mine underlined, not mine, not who I am, not yours or another's. Are we stewards, re-care, indifference, appreciation, admiration, improvement, diet, exercise, letting it be? So the teaching of not-self in relationship to the body seems to be the question. And I appreciate the, the acknowledging, the recognition, you know, when we talk about that not-self, but also not somebody else's. The tendency with the teaching can be to try and take a position based upon it. Teaching of anatta is not a position. It's a response to the tendency to take positions that actually say this is or this is not. In this case, this is not me or mine. So with the body, what we can see is that it actually requires our engagement. Say equally the mind, equally the heart. Equally, in fact, all minds, all hearts, all bodies are ultimately the concern of our practice. And to, to understand in terms of anatta, not self, to understand the body, to see it arises out of conditions. 
it's not subject to our control. We can't determine the outcomes of our body and its journey. We can, however, have an impact, have an influence upon it. And so from one side there's the teaching of anatta. And if one looks, you know, I remember reading once in one of the, it's actually one of the commentarial texts, a famous sort of compilation of the Buddha's teachings by, uh, huh, it's really funny when those familiar names just disappear. The Path of Purification of Maga and the, uh, the author's Buddhaghosa, yeah, Buddhaghosa. Um, it's not something which a lot of, I mean, it, it's much revered and respected in some traditions. For me, I, I don't necessarily find myself aligned with a lot of the perspectives in it, but it's nonetheless a really important text. And there was one, I remember when I was studying it, actually, uh, it was actually Manindra who gave me this text, and my, when I sort of was with him in India, he said, you should read this, and I was like, you know, this much text. He, he didn't give it to me, he said, yeah, you should read this, and I looked at it and thought, but uh, sometime later I was very ill, and uh, got the, uh, the book out of a library and spent uh, some months going through it. There was a t- one um, passage that struck me, which is yeah, from the commentaries, where there was this uh, monk practicing and his, his knees were really um, sore and swollen and becoming, um, I don't know if it was infected or damaged or something, but the sense was, oh, I'll just keep practicing and it doesn't matter. And you kind of got this very clear sense from it um, and I can't remember if it was said directly or not, that, well, you know, keep practicing. If you get enlightened, it'll, it really won't matter that you've disregarded and damaged your body. You know, it really just won't. And if you don't get enlightened, well, heck, you'll get another body. <laughs> um, and when I saw that, I thought, well, that's interesting. to be you know, so unconcerned about one's body that one would allow it to be sick, to be ill. Interestingly, you never see the body, never see the Buddha speaking like that about his body or anyone else's. And in fact, the invitation to, to take care of the body is, is part of the teaching and the practice to, to use food for one's well-being, to use robes for one's protection from, from sun and rain and creeping, crawling things. You know, it, it doesn't sound to me like an instruction to disregard the care for the body at all that one sees in the, in the, in the discipline for practitioners. So my sense is that it's actually where we see the balance between wisdom and compassion. Anatta might say, not me, not mine, you know, nothing to do with me, Gov. And yet the reality isn't that. We know that. The mind is conditioned by the body. You know, this is the um, Chitta Sankara, the, the conditioner of the mind is the body. So if we're concerned with the mind, which is also not me and not mine, but it is the field, the Chitta, the heart mind, is the field in which both suffering arises and likewise freedom arises. It's to be known. If we're concerned with this heart mind, we have to be concerned with this body. Ultimately, they are not separate. And so wisdom might say, not me, not mine, but compassion says, actually, this is precious. This is something which can be subject to difficult conditions and suffering, but also that can be subject to healing and to well-being. And that compassion naturally suggests this is what we should 
seek to bring in our relationship to the body. And the way, another way we can kind of perhaps understand it is that an authentic expression of, of the compassion that arises from understanding that we are not just this. And I, I think that's often a really good way to say it, a really good way to understand it in terms of its practical implications. We could say, I'm not this, but of course we're not something else. But sometimes more useful, we can say, not just this. So this, I'm not just this body. And nor is this just my body. Can you hear how that changes the way it sort of sits in, respond, in the sense of how the heart and mind might hold that? I'm not just this body, but I'm not somehow saying that my life has nothing to do with it. And so in terms of how I identify myself, but in terms of a sense of possession, it's not just my body. This actually body sort of belongs to me and sort of not, but it equally belongs to our species, it belongs to our community, it belongs to actually to this, we could say to this earth, to this world. And that there's a kind of a, a degree of responsibility we have for that which we are closest to, which is part of our karma, part of what it means to be a human being, is probably reasonably and understandably going to choose to protect the life of a small child over the life of a puppy. If one could save two of them, one of the other or the other from a car rushing onto the road, what we would do. Now, I don't know if a fully enlightened Buddha would have to think, hmm, actually they're equal to me. I'm not sure which one I should save, assuming there was a moment for that reflection. But the Buddha's mind's pretty quick, so I'm assuming there would be in that moment. I don't know. There's something about the human karma that says I actually probably, I, I, I'm going to guess, I mean I love puppies, but I'm going to guess I'm probably going to try and save the small child in front of the onrushing car if I had a choice, one or the other. In the same way, we can notice with this body in relationship to other bodies that there's a certain responsibility we have. If we don't take care of it, of course, it isn't a, a place in which practice can deepen or grow in which compassion can be... This is a vehicle for compassion, ultimately. And we need to actually care for the vehicle. We have to actually um, really uh, heal and support the well-being of this body. And that journey is not separate from the transformation of the mind. This is something that doesn't necessarily appear so clearly in the original, you know, in the... In the, in the uh, the early teachings of the Buddha, but um, nonetheless it's as it appears to me, so I'll give you my take on it. We, and actually I'll, I'll back up a moment to say how, how, how I would articulate that. When I was first practicing in Asia, and I remember um, encountering a teacher within the Zen tradition and the, the teaching that said the perfection of the posture is full enlightenment. And I remember thinking, oh, come on, you guys are just way too caught up in form and appearance. You know, you're trying to tell me that the body being able to sit in a perfect, you know, lotus position is enlightenment. And uh, over the years, I think I came to appreciate the truth in that teaching, which is that, in fact, 
for the body to be able to sit in a perfected posture, there would have to be absolutely no holding in the body or the mind. And the only way that's going to happen is actually a complete release and freeing of the heart, mind and body. And so actually it's true. That doesn't mean that the way you get enlightened is by as <laughs> early days and uh, sitting, trying to sit in half lotus like this and the teacher coming along with a stick and trying to, you know, jam it down on the ground. And so it's sort of, okay, and then he lifts the stick up and the knee comes up. And he, I remember him looking at my friend whose knee was up like this and he's, my friend, you know, we were, stick comes up, leg, knee comes up. You know, and after a little time, one can do this. But um, back then, not a chance. And so there was that kind of, it seems, attempt to impose the shape that was presumed to accord with the, uh, the image or the model of wisdom, to impose that shape onto the, um, onto the body. And I think that's actually not so helpful. A bit of stretching and working and moving with that particular part of one's body is helpful for the posture and that. But for me, why, why I'm naming that is that we can get into an adversarial relationship with the body. Um, and sometimes in the sense of, well, it's not me, but as if I somehow have to sort of whip it into shape. Um, and that's really not helpful. It's equally true to say that this is as absolutely what you are as anything else. There's nothing else that's more or less absolutely what you are than the body that you're inhabiting. It's not yours, but it's not someone else's. It's as worthy of our love, our care, our compassion as anything we might encounter, any being, any tree, any expression of ecology, of landscape. That we imagine it to be separate from everything around it is the fundamental mistake. Anatta, not separate, removed, independent, isolated, and able to exist apart from all of that in which it is embedded and surrounded. Anatta is quicker to say, or not self. But that's actually what's being said. This form cannot be separated. No form, in fact, can be separated. All form, all expressions of life arise inseparably from that in which they arise. Understanding, holding that perspective allows us both space from undue reliance, dependence or identification, reliance and dependence on or identification with the particular form that arises, but at the same time really respecting and honour that this form has arisen in this way and here this body as a vehicle for something, something beautiful, something profound. And to really respect it as such, I think, is to honour the, the, the mystery, really, of the fact that this body is here at all. The miraculousness, the fact that it's still going. And the ineffable 
kind of reality that one day it'll still be here, but it will no longer have that spark that animates it. And until then, we have a certain responsibility to it, to it, as and to ourselves. We could say as that expression of life, which in one sense we could say we are most immediately proximate and close to, and then beings around us and concentric circles and all that. We are equally we have a responsibility too, and as the Proximity extends outwards. The degree of responsibility is not less, but it's shared with more and more beings. And so there is some way it's true that uh, we have a greater responsibility, I think, for those we are closest to, and the body is very much an expression of this. But that's not in conflict with or a negation of the responsibility to that and those further away from us, and ultimately the responsibility to everything to all of life and its myriad expressions and in its ultimate inseparability from itself. It's always interesting as to how much to say, but I'll just pause there, I think. Please, would you say something about the relationship from your experience? That's underlined. I have to try and remember that. From your experience between samadhi and insight practices, I'm interested more in the practical, how they can be integrated than the theoretical. Many thanks. So, um, samadhi and insight, samatha vipassana. The phrase actually occurs in the text quite often as that, samatha vipassana. And so, <clears throat> although there are very clearly teachings in terms of technical orientation within meditation that are primarily directed towards or emphasizing one or the other, ultimately they need to both be operating to a certain degree. Both those qualities need to be being developed and supported for either of them to in fact deepen and certainly for them to have their shared potency. So from one sense, and certainly speaking from my own experience, I've not I've I've spent periods of time, you know, weeks and months even, just focusing on um some other practices. Um, mostly that was Quite some time ago in my in my own journey, I mostly when I practice these days, when I take some, you know, time when I have a few weeks or so for for a retreat, I mostly um, kind of hold them together in the sense that for me, I I, I feel there's a kind of a natural unfoldment in their development together. Um, and part of it is actually just being aware in the practice which of these particular orientations is most needed at any given point in, in, the, in the qualities that are present in the heart and the mind. Um, 
And so far as that's apparent, sort of giving more emphasis to steadying, stabilizing, quieting, focusing and deepening elements of samatha, focusing on those particular factors and qualities, or the, uh, the other, the focusing on, uh, on vipassana, on insight, on the, the quality that's more to do with an open-minded exploration of what it is that's happening. So how they come together. I think one thing is that one doesn't need to think of them so much as I'm doing this or I'm doing that. It's more like, okay, here's this element. But in fact, if we practice samatha without some degree of insight into the nature of um, sort of effort and attachment to results, we, we mostly just get entangled and struggle a lot. If we attempt to practice uh, vipassana without some degree of steadiness, calm and quiet of mind, then it easily becomes a lot of thinking about and intellectualizing. And, uh, and one can see those particular imbalances played out in, in lots of forms of practice that have, as a whole sort of way of doing it, seem to have moved much more to one direction or the other at least for periods of time. I guess it's a certain familiarity with the tools of those practices, so far as we describe them as this practice or that practice or this orientation, and the qualities associated with them that in terms of finding the balance, and you know, practice really always comes down to the practice of middle way. Where is the balance? Well, that includes both, in this case we could say both of these as factors of awakening, the, the wisdom factor well, actually not the wisdom, the investigation factor, which is the characteristic of, uh, of, of vipassana that we, we, we bring in for that, uh, that sort of curious, interested looking to see for insight. What's actually happening here? What's going on? Is this phenomena as I habitually imagine or conceive it to be, or is it other than that? And various questions one can ask in terms of that. Or the, uh, the factor of Of, of samatha, of calm and concentration, both those elements actually part of what's in samatha, the sense of quieting of things, and then the steadying of the mind and its ability to stay steady within a, a particular chosen object of attention. You know, classically in the, in the text, one reads many, many times of the development of absorption and then the moving of the attention out of the absorption to contemplate the nature of the phenomena. And that's, you know, that's a classical way in which we see them both used and one can practice in that way. You know, the, the interesting thing is that as one goes along in the development of samatha, there's a, a regular invitation to contemplate whatever degree of calm or whatever experience is available through that to see how, while at one level it might be rather nice, and it certainly can be, at another level it's actually not entirely fulfilling. It doesn't give satisfaction. In fact, one kind of contemplates its coarseness as an invitation to develop something more subtle. And one just keeps on doing that until it's got as subtle as it possibly can. Then one contemplates how subtle or how coarse that subtlety is compared to 
what would be a completely liberated mind and therefore turns the attention to to deepening of insight. And so there's there's actually a kind of an insight reflection required in the process ongoingly so that one doesn't say, oh, this is good, I'm going to stay here. One doesn't get attached to that experience. And it's very clear that the degree of samatha that's established in the citta both facilitates its capacity to see in ways that are, we could say, beyond or wider, broader than what it might otherwise be able to, to see beyond the the habitual assumptions, perceptions and interpretations that the mind carries, often unconsciously, often unquestioningly that the, the degree of calm really facilitates that. And yet, interestingly, you know, people regularly report, and certainly have the experience myself, often, of uh, one can be sitting and there can maybe be a lot of calm, a lot of quiet, a lot of stillness, some perhaps really enjoying or allowing oneself to steep in that quality, in the heart and mind. It's very healing to kind of rest in that. And yet actually the insights or the understandings arise when one is walking around getting a cup of tea or walking on the lawn. Not unusually. Not only that way, but not unusually. That the, um, the calm seems to facilitate that, the, the concentration, the samatha, seems to facilitate that. But it also has the effect of allowing the insight to actually go deeper, to go to not just the intellectual understanding but in a way the reorientation of the of the heart and the mind whereby one starts to see not to think in accordance with that idea or that understanding that one actually starts to see or perceive in the world in terms of that and that's actually quite a different thing although of course the thought may reflect the seeing the thought in itself doesn't necessarily transform our life And there are times in practice where it really makes sense to emphasize one for a period of time. To say, oh, for these days, weeks, or this sitting, I really want to work in this direction. And at other times, maybe the other. It's easy, however, to get the sense, and some of the early texts seem to reinforce this idea, that first of all, you've got to do the samatha thing and get your samatha together, and then you can practice insight. Now, actually, I don't think that's so. And one of the great discoveries and really the... Uh, wonderful offerings of the what has you know become the insight tradition is that in fact one doesn't have to do it that way sort of lay people weren't ever really taken seriously in terms of practice in most places in asia because unless you're in a monastic situation having given up your life in the world you couldn't do enough practice to it seemed to um to deepen in the uh, samatha qualities uh, sufficiently and so then the assumption was well they're not really going to get much insight either and it was Mahasi Sayadaw in the, uh, really, I'm trying to think exactly, was it 40s, 50s, 60s? It was developing where he actually realizing, oh, actually, you can, through the development of a certain degree of, of concentration, of samatha, there's actually enough ground and basis for very penetrative insight to arise. And accordingly, the, um, you know, the, 
starting to have retreats rather than sign on the dotted line, this is your life, um, engagement in that way. So that whole, I guess, exploration of the, the place and the integration of these two is a, something that's moved a long way in the last half century or a little more than that, than it had been for, for a long, long time. I'm not sure if that was practical enough, um, but I hope it was useful. And again, open or feel free to ask me if there was something more there. Okay, this question's in the concise version and the not concise version. So the concise version is engaged Buddhism, tautology or oxymoron. Less concise, regarding the Buddhist relationship to abandoning dispassion, to dispassion, abandoning the world, practicing inner work on oneself and compassion, metta, right livelihood. How do I feel about this? Well, if the question is how I feel about it, um, it's challenging. It's challenging. There is a tendency within the Buddhist tradition, absolutely, to have a sense of not concerning oneself or engaging with the world in the external sense. And there is a also very strong and established tradition of doing just that. And one can look and say, well, that one's engaged Buddhism and that one's not. It's really interesting when we talk about the world. What do we mean? What do we mean by the world? We can't actually not be engaged with the world. There are different levels at which we might do so, little different levels at which we might conceive it. But if we are engaged with the construction of self, we're also engaged with the world. They are inseparable from each other. To choose to take some time, and that might be a few days, a few weeks, or just a few minutes every morning, it could be a few months, it could be a few lifetimes, to choose to say, actually, I want to work on a certain dimension of this. For me, that's an absolutely valid choice. It's probably never going to be the case that the majority of people on our planet choose that and everything grinds to a halt. It's a risk, of course. It does look like it's kind of fun, after all. Um, it's supposed to be a joke. And there will always be people, it seems, and um, equally blessed, equally important that people choose to engage, to speak up, to stand up, to call out and to... You know, place their body and their words and their resources directly into the path of that which may be causing harm in the world. And uh, the, the sense of engaged Buddhism often, that sense of where, where do we actually go out and do something. If we're engaging with the forces of greed, of hatred and delusion, we're actually doing something. We're engaging with what needs to be engaged. Whether we engage with their expressions as they arise within this heart, this mind, this body, i.e. this location, where we have, as I said before, quite some responsibility for taking care of it, that's good. That's important, I would say. If we engage with it as we see it arising in other bodies or in other conglomerate bodies of um, corporate or government or social um, activities that are, that are harmful, that are causing suffering, 
or that are limiting the potential for well-being and for, for peace and for freedom, then that equally is of importance, is of value. And how do I feel about this? Well, in one sense, I think I feel passionate that we do something. Really, do something. The something that we do is equal. I'm equally passionate about doing something which involves sitting around apparently doing nothing as doing something that looks like something is being done in the conventional sense. And that we each have to really listen to ourselves and see what feels true in regard to that. Ultimately, this practice is the practice of a revolution that is possible in the human heart and mind and is also possible in the human society, human culture, human world around us. And whichever, and I don't think it's a choice of one or the other, but whichever we find ourselves engaged in, from where I'm sitting, it's good. It's to be honoured, to be lauded, to be commended, to be encouraged. To engage with the, the transformation of greed, of hatred, of blindness and disconnection. Wherever we encounter it, in whichever way we're able to engage with that, is something worthy and uh, noble and what we're doing here I feel is engaged there's no such thing as disengaged Buddhism that's called falling asleep and of course we do that sometimes as well but wherever we fall asleep that's the place we also have the potential to wake up whether on our cushion or marching on a high street or standing standing up for something that we cherish, that we love, that we value in a perhaps charged situation. Ultimately, in a way we need to go beyond engaged Buddhism, actually marry the world, marry our life. Engaged suggests a commitment to. And Dharma in any expression or form is really about the profoundest commitment we can make to life. To understanding and living in accordance with how it is. To living in accordance with wisdom, with compassion. And whenever we make a commitment, it challenges us in all sorts of ways. And we can't necessarily, and it's not so useful to try and assess other people's commitments. But to really consider our own, I think, is essential. And allow that also to be an inspiration to each other, our own commitment 
engagement and, in fact, marriage. What does it mean to marry our life? To say this, this one. Marry our world. Marry our body. This one. In the spirit of love and truth. So for me, that's very much what you could say Buddhism, or I'd say the Dharma, is concerned with. And it's 3.30, or just after, in fact. So I need to finish. Thank you for your questions, for your listening, for your presence and attention and for your practice. Please continue. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.